This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Thank you for setting aside some time for us today. My name is Rasa Fumagali, and I am your host for today's podcast. Joining us today, we have Amy Bilton, Annie Davidson, and Christine Melanson. Amy Bilton is a shareholder, Medicare secondary payer professional, and workers' compensation defense trial attorney at the Chicago law firm of Nyan, Bambrick, Kinsey, and Lowry. She received her BA from the University of Michigan and JD from DePaul University College of Law. Her certifications include the Medicare Secondary Payer Consultant Certification through the International Commission on Healthcare Certification and Certified Medicare Secondary Payer Professional Fellow Certification. Belton is a frequent lecturer on workers' compensation and all aspects of Medicare Secondary Payer Compliance. She is a board member and past president of the National Medical excuse me, National Medicare Secondary Payer Network, formerly NAMSAP, for which she co-chairs the annual conference planning committee, chairperson of the MSCC board for the ICHCC, and instructor for the CMSP and CMSP fellow certifications. Annie Davidson is the senior MSP compliance counsel and policy strategist for ExamWorks Compliance Solutions. Davidson has comprehensive experience in the area of Medicare secondary payer compliance and Medicaid recovery and liability, no fault, and workers' compensation matters. Davidson provides high-quality legal analysis to ensure the integrity and quality of exam works, clinical solutions, Medicare secondary payer compliance services, and related products. Additionally, she is a nationally recognized expert on MSP issues who presents regularly at local and national conferences. Davidson is admitted to practice law in the state of Minnesota and the United States District Court for Minnesota. Prior to her work with ExamWorks Clinical Solutions, she practiced as an insurance defense litigator with a Minneapolis law firm. In that position, Davidson gained significant experience handling workers' compensation, liability, and no-fault cases and coordinated the firm's policies for handling Medicare requirements. She is the co-chair of the Policy and Legislative Committee of the National MSP Network. And last but not least, we have Christine Melanson. Christine currently serves as the Director of Regulatory Compliance at Clara Analytics, the leading provider of artificial intelligence technology in the commercial industry. Previously, Melanson served as operations strategist for Cobalt Compliance Partners and was the founder and vice president of operations at EZMSA. In the past, Melanson has served as co-chair of MSPN's Education Committee and as a board member and officer of the association. She enjoys educating others who desire to learn more about MSP compliance issues and is a frequent speaker at various events, as well as an instructor for the Louisiana Association of Self-Insured Employers Certified Medicare Secondary Payer Professional Fellow Program, Melanson is a graduate of Charity Hospital School of Nursing and the University of New Orleans. She's successfully transferred many years of clinical experience into a successful career in MSP compliance. My goodness, what an esteemed group of speakers we have today. All right, 
MSP compliance obligations stem from the Medicare Secondary Payer Act and supporting regulations. Workers' compensation cases also have the benefit of CMS's Workers' Compensation Medicare Set-Aside Reference Guide, and there's a voluntary review process for determining the amount of the MSA funds that should be carved out of the settlement. When we're discussing MSP compliance issues, we also have to deal with conditional payment recovery claims and Section 111 reporting. Now, some people may claim that MSP compliance advice should only be given by attorneys, while others believe that the services provided by a vendor are the way to go. Amy, Annie, and Christine, all three of you provide MSP compliance services in different settings, and you may have similar or different approaches to your work. Let's take a look at these. Let's start with Amy. Amy, you are a practicing attorney in a law firm here in Chicago. Having worked for you in the past, I'm familiar with your stellar MSP compliance team. But for those who are not, how do you and your team analyze a referral for an MSP compliance evaluation? Hi, Rasa. Um, Hi, Amy. <laughs> so, uh, I, I uh, guess we go about things a little differently than, than maybe the other two panelist companies do. So when a case comes in to, uh, to us, we look at it very holistically and we start with it looking at it from the legal perspective. So as you mentioned, the uh, MSP obligation stems with the underlying state law. So we look to the state law and we look to see how that applies to all those different things that you talked about, to Medicare set-asides, to conditional payments, to Section 111 reporting. And, um, and so we work backwards from there. So we start with the law and we work backwards from there. I think that's a little different than what um, other companies might do. So the holistic approach and the start from the legal obligations is your starting point. So now let's, let's talk to Annie for a second. Now, Annie, you are an attorney, but you also work for ExamWorks, which is not a law firm. And as a policy person, I assume that you also do some settlement consulting on cases. So what is your approach like when you do have a case that comes in for an MSP compliance evaluation? How do you approach things? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. You know, to, to Amy's point, when I was in private practice um, at a mid-sized firm here in Minnesota, I very much started from the, the place of the law. So I'm familiar with, with Amy's approach. Um, and, and our group at that time was tasked with kind of looking at every case that came in, every injury case to sort of just start at the top, right? And you figure out, is this person a Medicare beneficiary? If they're not, have they applied for, you know, social security disability? You kind of start with these factors of figuring out, you know, if they're on Medicare. And then from there, you know, moving in, in state law, et cetera. Now working at a vendor, I absolutely consult with folks across the board and these cases come from all over and they come in various stages and I might not have all of the information. You know, Amy has like a full case file. Typically that's what they're working off of. When you're working at a vendor, um, you don't always get that you're getting snippets and you're relying on the folks who are sending you files to fill in the gaps. And then you're, you know, giving your MSP advice accordingly. And so it, it runs the gamut from should I get a Medicare set aside to, you know, I just had two ALJ hearings back to back yesterday and today on conditional payment matters at the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. And sometimes it's, you know, settlement document review. 
some attorneys drafted the, the settlement documents. Does this satisfy Medicare's interest under, you know, 42 USC 1395 YB, right? So that's really what, what I do is kind of, you know, every little piece of it, I will tackle it wherever it's at in, in the stage that it's at and, and go from there. So thank you for that explanation there, Annie. So you indicated, though, that you are judging your analysis based on the information that you're given. And if you're only given snippets, do you actually request additional information? Like, is there a proactive effort or is it a situation of this is what the client chose to provide to me? This is what I'm going to base my analysis on. Great question. Um, it depends. Uh, I may ask for additional information. I may go with what they've got. Oftentimes I tend to give answers or um, suggestions with what they've given me. And then I'll kind of outline what I don't know. And I'll say, you know, if if this isn't true, then you want to look at Y, or if this is true, look at Z. Um, so I, I might do it that way. And I think in my position, I have to be very careful because I am a licensed attorney, but the advice that I'm giving, I'm giving in my capacity as sort of a Medicare expert wearing my, you know, Medicare set aside certified consultant um, uh, certification, you know, so I'm, I'm very careful that I'm not giving legal advice um, because I'm not working for a law firm anymore. And my advice to clients is really kind of coming from this, this kind of more layperson knowledge um, with that MSCC expertise um, twist, I guess. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that, which leads us now to asking Christine how she approaches things. I mean, many people are able to provide MSP compliance services without having a law degree. They have their experience, they have their certifications, they have you know, a lot of knowledge from working with CMS. So Christine, how do you at Clara Analytics, what do you do when you get an MSP compliance evaluation request? So we're pretty unique among vendors in that we have access to the claim file in its entirety, and that's very lucky. So it cuts down on the back and forth. But one thing that I can say that has helped me here and other places that I've worked is to understand and know what are the best practices of the client. And that way, when a request that comes in, that maybe seems a bit, I don't know if I want to use the word off, but we'll just put that, you know, we'll just say it's a little off. If you look at the client's um, specific guidelines, you can see where they're coming from in that request. And most of the questions that are really posed to me um, up front, if the adjuster or the attorney has a question about a case, they're really more like CMS policy and procedure questions, not necessarily directly related to the statutory regulations of 42 USC. You know, if it has a policy procedure question or they, they're lacking some documentation and they say, what do you think Medicare will do with this in the chance that we need to submit this? So most of the time, it's really just being lucky enough to have the whole file um, very happy to have all their best practices right at our fingertips for that particular client. And the, really, most recently, um, I'm seeing a lot of kind of a resurfacing of zeros. And so when it if there's a question about the zero for us, you know, you have to see whether it's a legal zero, which we will help we will, you know, get the support that we can from the defense attorney. Or, or reach out to an MSP compliance attorney to help assist them. 
um, support their zero. Uh, and then there's the other zero, which is just, uh, you know, the treatment's really resolved and we help them best support that also. So, uh, you know, I, I think anecdotally, we were talking about the funniest question I was ever asked. I thought it was the funniest question. In deposition, they ask an attorney, asked me if the Medicare set aside was a part of 42 USC. And I said, no. And he said, well, we've already determined you're not an attorney. So how can you say that? And I said, well, I can read. And those words don't ever appear in that law. It's just really a mechanism for complying um, with what's in those statutory regulations. It's the recommended method, maybe not the only method. That is a great answer. I'm sure that those attorneys uh, must have been stunned when you responded, pointing out that you can read. I think the key is that, you know, there are different ways to provide MSP compliance services. I think one of the things that I would like you to elaborate on, Christine, like Clara is artificial intelligence. Like how does how does that play into the way that you have a Medicare set aside recommendation prepared? So we're looking at the statistics across that case and looking at statistics across all the cases. If the client uh, requests to be in the shared database, then they have the, the ability to share in the wealth of everyone's information that runs their cases through us. Otherwise, they just look at their cases. But there's some predictability in the model um, that we see in approvals and evidence-based medicine MSAs. And we also make sure if it's if there's a particular state with um, in their statutory regulations for workers comp, they have a recognized limitations on their treatment, or maybe that's not the best way to say it, but treatment guidelines that are adopted for that state, like ACOM or ODG or Colorado that has their own in particular, the model rec- it's embedded and it recognizes that and it's not going to let anything through that's against their policies um, and their regulations in an EBM situation because we know we know what the review center thinks of particular jurisdictional issues. Um, although something tells me Amy has a really good way of helping them recognize situations. But to answer your question, um, Rasa, it's really just a giant brain. It's looking at all the information that's put in um, and all the regs. It, it thinks much quister, faster and quicker than I ever could or all of my staff. Can oh, so if I understand correctly, you're basically kind of searching for diagnosis codes within a jurisdiction, right? Correct. Okay. So um, let's go to Amy. When you are having Medicare set aside analyses prepared, I know that you know, you do not have these databases the way that Christine does. How does your office prepare Medicare set-aside allocations? Well, we generally will start with, uh, you know, what the injuries are, what the accepted portions of the claim are, and we will, again, we kind of work backwards from there. So anything that is not accepted or where there has been some type of legal argument raised, whether it's been tried in the, in through the workers' compensation board in the in the in the, in the uh, state of the a venue, or whether it has not, we will we will compile the legal arguments for limitations on whatever care it is. So we also use um, state state law regulation or state law limitations such as utilization review, or California has UR and IMR, or we will use um, like Georgia has a, a cap on 
uh, non-catastrophic claims. And we'll figure out how to best put that into the allocation so we can be clear about why we are not allocating for certain items. And then for anything that's accepted and it's a pure uh, commutation, what we'll do is we will um, we'll go through and we will allocate based on uh, what we anticipate um, will be needed. Uh, we do have nurses that we that we use that have um, certifications in in life care planning and or um, uh, MSCC. Um, I don't know if any of them are CMSP, but but we do have uh, all of our attorneys have one of those uh, certifications as well. So. Um, we will allocate in that way. And then any other limitations that we, we might want to put on it, um, such as, um, you know, if this individual can no longer have a certain type of, of um, let's say, let's say the person can't have an MRI because they have retained hardware from another injury or even from this injury, we'll, we'll make sure we point that out. Um, and uh, then we'll submit the allocation with with all of the supporting documentation for that. We do a, a lot of work. Um, you know, Annie was saying you're only as good as the information that you have, right? And and I totally agree with that. And quite often, I would say more than more than 60% of the time, we don't have everything that we need when we start the allocation. We we look to get additional information to support. So, for instance, we may reach out to um, the, the claimant's attorney and say, we needed something from the doctor uh, because the electronic medical record says that this person is still taking X, Y, and Z medications, but clearly from the pharmacy printout, they're not. We need something from the treating doctor clarifying that they're no longer taking those things and explaining when those were discontinued. So we'll, we'll go through on anything that's, that's um, on the fence, if you will, and try to clarify whether it should be in or not in. And if it should not be in, have supporting documentation for that. And then, you know, most of our clients are submit clients. And um, most of our clients are clients who want to go in at the lowest justifiable cost that they possibly can. Our clients are not generally as concerned with 100% matching. I know that there are some clients out there that really want to see 100% of the time that you get it right. Uh, our clients are not. Our clients want to pay only for what this is generally, but they generally want to pay only for what they're legally responsible for. So it, we we take that very seriously and uh, we try to allocate only for those things that we we believe that they are legally responsible for. And and mm -hmm. at the time of settlement, generally the claimant's attorney is on board, too, because there's X amount of money. And the, the money that they're never going to see is that MSA money. So they, they'd rather see that money go to their client rather than, than into this, this fund that may or may never be used. Absolutely. So, Annie, how about, like Amy just brought up the fact that a lot of her clients prefer to have their Medicare set-aside proposals reviewed by CMS. How about you and the exam workspace? I mean, do most of the people that come to you seek Medicare set-asides that are projected in accordance with CMS guidelines and look for submission? Or are you guys seeing many people who are not that interested in submission? Yeah, we really see kind of both sides of that issue. We have an evidence-based Medicare set-aside product that is pretty popular. And so we have some major carriers out there who that, that's kind of their first go-to is working with, um, you know, you heard um, Christine talk about ACOM and ODG. We have clients that want us to use evidence-based standards of care when doing their allocations, which also kind of goes to Amy's point. The clients don't want to be paying for care 
that they're not responsible for, and they also don't want to be overpaying for the care. And so we've seen a, a large rise in clients wanting to kind of challenge what Medicare is doing with maybe some outdated guidance, or I know um, Christine and Amy are both familiar with um, pushback that we as an industry have given about, you know, CMS using opioids for life expectancy to come up with a number for their, their allocations and, and what should be set aside. And, you know, as an industry, I think folks, we think that that's really dangerous. Um, so it, it kind of depends, but we have some clients moving in the direction of wanting to use kind of more evidence-based standards and, you know, wean people off of narcotics. And, and to Christine's point before, you know, you're right. 42 USC 1395 YB doesn't say anything about Medicare set-asides. Um, and so we, we really are dealing with agency guidance here, and it's a totally voluntary submission process. So by all means, uh, we're helping clients, you know, in the evidence-based realm, but then we absolutely have clients who want to submit every single Medicare set aside that meets the applicable workload review threshold. And in those cases, we write it to Medicare standards. You know, we allocate those narcotics for life expectancy. We're adding in surgeries that, you know, the individual claimant has said, I never am going to have that surgery. We're doing that. Um, so really it's just, you know, our goal is to meet our clients where they're at and to work with what, you know, they have at the time um, to make sure that they're complying with, you know, 42 USC and the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. But, you know, reasonable minds can and do differ how, how you satisfy that act. And, and we accommodate that. Yeah, I think the key really is that the goal is to avoid a cost shift of injury related expenses to Medicare, you've got to look at what is injury related, you also have to look at what is a reasonable way to address these potential MSP compliance issues, whether it's an accepted case or a disputed case. So so there are a lot of different things that factor in. So, you know, with that being said, so Christine, do you have any involvement with conditional payments at all? Or does, is this something that is part of the service that's offered at Clara? We do. We do um, involve ourselves in conditional payments. I, I have my own feelings about uh, what they do there with them um, and how they identify them. Their groupers are off. Uh, many times, if you are giving them a very simple ICD code and that you're covering a single body part for a full diagnosis, that is certainly not what you will find on your conditional payment uh, notice. So, you know, it's, it's um, something that the clients definitely need. It's absolutely required um, to help the, the clients with this. It's, uh, I, and just say, let me say something overall, not just necessarily about conditional payments, but I think we could all agree in this group that we really lose sight of how complicated these issues are. We don't think of them as complicated because we've been living them and breathing them and sleeping, you know, on these subjects for many years now, but from the outside looking in, it's pretty complicated. So I will get questions from a client where they're looking at a conditional payment and they say, this is a hand crush injury completely unrelated to my right hip. Why is this on my conditional payment notice? Indeed, why is it? It will keep us all in business for years to come until they fix uh, whatever problems and issues they're having uh, at the CRC. But yes, we do. We do them. Um, their arguments, most of the arguments that are made at the, the initial level for us are on relatedness. 
And uh, when you rise above the level of redetermination and getting to appeals, we'll typically involve an attorney in, in those situations. Yeah. So how about you, Annie? Is this something that ExamWorks gets involved in? I think you started out by saying you were doing some of these ALJ hearings on this. Yeah. So I actually cut my teeth in the Medicare industry on conditional payments. That was something that I worked on heavily at my uh, former law firm and really kind of came over to exam works with the idea of like learning Medicare set asides um, just because that wasn't really my wheelhouse before. So absolutely. um, I brought a book of business over with me. I do lots of complex cases. Um, As Christine said, a lot of them are complex. I work with um, state workers' compensation um, exposure cases a lot where there's a lot of defense parties. There's several different insurers and employers on the hook for the exposure that the employee, um, had over time throughout their, their history. And that now they've developed asbestosis or something like that. Um, so absolutely heavily involved in those. And then I handle all of our conditional payment ALJ work. So we have a whole department here that handles our, you know, level one and level two appeals. And then once we start to get into level three and four, the Medicare appeals council and or the ALJ and the Medicare Appeals Council, that's sort of when I take over. And then we've also developed, we have um, kind of automated conditional payment programs for the clients where we do Section 111 reporting. So we have some clients who've opted into that. And we just, as a matter of routine, you know, handle those. I think a lot of law firms too, Amy, you probably do this, is if you've got the case and you're handling the MSA, you'll also handle kind of the conditional payment matters. So um, absolutely, we're involved in that all day, every day. Yeah. So thank you. So Amy, I know that you indicated that your approach is a holistic approach when it comes to the case. So I know that, for example, if it's an Illinois workers' comp case, which is where the firm obviously is based, do you ever consult with the comp attorney's on the case while your division is working on the MSP compliance issues? How does that work? Yes. uh, I mean, even in Illinois, where we are all licensed and all know the law very well, we do work very closely with the defense attorneys in the case. Um, You know, if we don't have the underlying case, it might seem weird to be dealing with people who are usual competitors in the workers' comp business, but it's actually not because so many of them don't actually have Medicare secondary payer uh, you know, divisions to their to, or departments in their firms. And so we work very closely with them and also with, with attorneys from other states. We don't we don't just uh, do conditional payment uh, recovery and dis- in disputes and, and appeals process uh, process cases in Illinois. We do them all across the country. And, and I'm not licensed in every state. Thank goodness. Uh, but um, I, I do work very closely with the defense attorneys. We, we do a lot of work in California. Um, and if you if you work in California, you know, your your world is a little different than everybody else's. Uh, same is true, by the way, in Illinois. Um, and so we do work very closely with any any counsel, especially, you know, if, if there's some issue of law that they've argued all the way through, we make sure that we have that correct and we have all the correct citations to the law when we when we lodge our conditional payment disputes. Thank you, Amy. So it's actually very clear from chatting with all three of you that all three of you have a ton of experience in the area of MSP compliance. And I know that any client 
would be safe and do well with all three of you. There are many different ways to provide MSP compliance services. It's just a matter of choosing who is right for you in that particular case. So Amy, Annie, and Christine, thank you for setting aside some time today to chat with us. Thank you to our audience for setting aside some time to listen to our MSPN podcast. 